<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode three of the Just Science special release season, we interviewed Dr. Lynn Lamont from Louisiana State University and Dr. Jeffrey Wells from Florida International University. Last season on Just Science, we covered a range of topics on data and proof of error in the courtroom. This NIJ-funded research is aiding death investigators and forensic scientists to give a probability statement in courtroom testimony. Dr. Wells and Dr. Lamont give us an in-depth look into the complex issues of their research and statistical methods for combining multivariate and categorical data in postmortem interval estimation. Funding for this episode is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to the Just Science Podcast. We're broadcasting this week from the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's been a wonderful week. We've been able to visit with an enormous number of of wonderful folks, a lot of activity here. And the most important activity, of course, is the NIJ Research Symposium. A lot of people come to New Orleans for the Mardi Gras. I come to New Orleans to hear about the wonderful amount of forensic research that's going on. And today we're gonna be talking to a couple of folks, Lynn Lamont of Louisiana State University and Jeffrey Wells of FIU, Florida International University. FIU actually is a new partner in the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. So we're welcoming FIU on board with the uh, FTCOE team this year. But they're gonna be talking about a separate research grant that they received in 2013 from NIJ on the use of statistical methods to characterize post-mortem interval. Welcome, gentlemen. So, Jeff, you're from FIU, and your expertise really is in PMI and and looking at maggots and things like that to determine PMI. Is that right? Uh, Correct. Uh, I'm an entomologist and a DNA analyst, and uh, most of my research for some time has been the use of insects uh, in a death investigation, and the main application is estimating the time since death. And that's a standard question in any investigation of a suspicious death. Who is this person? How did this person die? When did this person die? Right. So you're familiar, obviously, with the use of entomology to determine PMI and also with the uncertainties associated with PMI. And there are significant uncertainties associated with PMI. Is that right? And then there's uncertainty just because of variation in the phenomena. So if we take the most conservative kind of analysis you would make as a forensic entomologist, which is to estimate the age of an insect associated with the corpse. So I mean, we're talking about maggots on corpses. You can't make this pretty. And if you estimate the age of a maggot from a corpse, uh, under most circumstances, the person was dead at the time the mother fly came along and dropped an egg on the victim. So the age of that maggot is what we often call a minimum postmortem interval. So dead for at least this amount of time, but maybe longer. Well, that's based on understanding how fast these things grow, but there's a lot of what we call random variation in how fast they grow. So even if you had perfect information about the scene, 
there would still have to be a range in your estimate of that maggot's age and therefore a range in your estimate of the minimum postmortem interval. Sure. So I can safely assume this has been something of interest to you to try to understand how to characterize those variations more rigorously for a number of years. And that's really where this research arose from, right? It was it's trying to understand how to characterize the variations in a rigorous way. Yes. The way I like to phrase it is to be able to objectively express the uncertainty in your conclusion. And this is part of a broader discussion that's covering uh, almost all of the forensic sciences right now. And not surprisingly, this has come out of the great progress in DNA analysis. And DNA analysis is very mathematical, and people have been able to associate probabilities with their conclusion for a long time. And this has made the other aspects of forensic science, many of, of which have been around for a very long time, they're sort of pre-modern is not quite the right word, but they came out of a time when science was a very different thing. So like fingerprints, uh, they don't associate a probability with fingerprint analysis, and that's in part because fingerprint analysis has been around so long. So we're all feeling a little bit deficient in our mathematics. And what I have tried to do, and I partnered with Lynn Lamott because he is the statistician, is to come up with appropriate statistical methods so that, number one, when you estimate the postmortem interval, you do that as a range rather than a single value, and that you can justify that range based on an explicit probability statement. So that's where, of course, Lynn comes in. So Lynn, you're with Louisiana State University. You're a statistician. And I am assuming, but you tell me, is this your first foray into this, this set of problems in forensic science in trying to create objective statements of uncertainty? Uh, yeah, it, you could put it that way. Uh, Jeff and I have been working together on these questions for quite a long time, for a couple of decades. And uh, yes, I'm a statistician, and our work has focused on being able to attach probability statements in terms of the statistical methodology that's used. So we want to be able to say, if we come up with a, an interval estimate, of PMI, or let's say of the age of the insect, we want to be able to say that that's a 95% confidence interval, and we want to be able to give evidence and show empirically with a sound theoretical basis that indeed that methodology produces intervals that capture the true age uh, very close to 95% of the time. Right. So now I guess I'll make my first challenge to you. And that is one of the first things that Jeff said was that there are two kinds of variation here. One is observational variation, and then the second is the variation with respect to the maggots themselves. And there could be systematic errors, certainly in both, but almost certainly there could be systematic errors in maggot growth based on something as simple as what the person last ate, <laughs> okay, or whether they're in a field where there's a lot of insects, where they're more likely to lay their eggs earlier rather than later, or the temperature. All these create systematic changes. So those are more difficult to nail down in a statistical framework. How do you all deal with the idea that there's two different kinds of 
what you might call a random error, but then you also have systematic error. From a statistician's point of view, how do you view those kinds of problems? Yeah, there are uh, two parts to that, and some of that can be handled statistically in the modeling itself. Uh, if there are data that can address that, in other words, in an experimental design to produce training data that can handle that, but the other part, the sorts of things that you mentioned, you know, what did the subject have to eat last, that sort of thing, that has to be dealt with uh, on a subject matter basis. So Jeff and others have to, to deal with that, and some of it may be able to be incorporated into the statistical models, but others may just take the form of disclaimers that uh, we know this much and we can say this much, but we have to hedge a little bit because of the things that, that aren't well known. I think there's not a whole lot of controversy about what you posit during your during the research symposium. I'll just read out to the audience. All forensic science conclusions should be accompanied by an objective statement of uncertainty, that PMI should be discussed as a range rather than a single value, and that defining that range as statistical confidence limits is an appropriate approach. So you're talking about range, so from like the least amount that the maggot could have been there, you know, it's, it's at most a two-day-old maggot, all the way out to, you know, whatever it might be. And then you have the 95% confidence limit. That is, if you have a two to four day range, 95% of the instances are going to fall within that two to four day range. Is that a reasonable way of discussing that? I would state it somewhat differently uh, in that what it amounts to is that uh, any age in that range is a tenable age for the specimen that was found at the scene. So we have a specimen in hand, it has certain characteristics, then that particular set of characteristics is compared statistically to a statistical model fit to empirical data, to training data uh, spanning a range of ages. In those comparisons then, this specimen's characteristics are not significantly dissimilar from those characteristics of maggots of ages anywhere between two and four days, the, the interval that you mentioned. One has to be very careful in interpreting statements of that sort. Right. And that is difficult. The precision of language necessary to properly report statistically valid results is a challenge for myself and I think is a challenge for the forensic community and something that I think the, the community is going to be learning for a long time to come, frankly. So, Jeff, you have the training data to input into a statistical model that allows us to be grounded in that regard. Is that data that we have available to us? Uh, yes. If I could uh, volunteer a couple of things. So we've been talking about estimating the age of a carrion insect, and that is certainly a very common task. It is not the only forensic entomological approach to estimating time since death. The other one is insect succession, which uses the fact that the set of insect species in a corpse changes over time. And there are pretty regular patterns that are observed worldwide in that there are types of insects that are attracted to a recently dead person and then the set changes as decomposition proceeds until there finally are just bones and there are things that are coming in that just eat hair and, and stuff like that. And so 
the other approach and the only way we've been able to tackle this in terms of probabilities is just presence and absence. There obviously are changes in abundance, but we don't know how to handle that yet. So that's the other approach. And that has the potential to actually estimate the time of death, assuming the person died where he or she was found. I mean, there are always assumptions that go into the interpretation of this. So we have this idea of insect succession. We have this idea of insect development. We have a lot of our own training data on this, and a lot of other people have published their own. In terms of succession, we've produced, I'm sure, the largest data set and the most appropriate for putting a probability. In terms of development, there are lots and lots of studies out there. But let me say, there has been very little validation. There have been some studies but there have been very few empirical validation experiments where people have, you know, blind testing. Somebody knows how old this maggot really is and someone else tries to estimate it, or somebody knows how long that corpse has been at that location and somebody tries to estimate it. We're just getting started with that effort. And your work here isn't attempting to do that validation work, right? You haven't gotten to that point. We have not, but it's our opinion that you have to have the statistical methods before you can do the validation. Somebody has to know the right answer, and then someone else has to apply the analytical method, and then you see whether you got the right answer or not. I know somebody's time since death. We get this, for example, from real casework. You have some reason to know exactly when somebody died. You can't expect the PMI prediction method to get that exactly right, you know, down to the third decimal point. So the question is, how close is close enough? And a confidence interval defines exactly how close. You know, the true age should fall within your confidence interval. And as Lynn said, if you're making 95% confidence intervals, then the true value should fall within that confidence interval at least 95% of the time. So we believe that we had to develop these methods first before validation studies could be done. I guess I would challenge it even one layer more, and that is that a validation study can vary itself with respect to its rigor. So, as you mentioned, certain assumptions that you need to put into a real-world situation, those assumptions might make the problem of estimating PMI easier or harder. And if you have an easy set of problems, it might make the validation study easier to conduct but it might not necessarily be an appropriate validation study for all situations where you might have more uncertainties in the case. So uh, we duck that completely. So this is uh, how we see it. And using the language that I've learned from Lynn, we talk about predicting condition from response. It's easy to talk about the maggot growth because it's a relatively simple situation. So the condition is age. And the response is whatever it is you measure, length or weight or, or something else. And that growth is going to be affected by a lot of things. It's going to be affected by temperature most profoundly. It's going to vary between species. It is uh, probably going to vary somewhat with food uh, and things like that. So to understand the relationship between the environmental conditions, whatever they were, and how that's going to affect maggot development rate, we call that the condition response model. And obviously understanding that is very important. And lots of people work on that. 
you know, people are dying of drug overdoses. Uh, let's grow these maggots at various drug concentrations and see what that does to their growth rate. Let's see what constant temperatures, let's see what varying temperatures, let's see what difference in day length. Lots of people look at that. We don't look at that. We propose methods that say these probabilities should be correct to the extent that your condition response model is correct. It's a big enough job that there's something for everybody to do and we let other people worry about, okay, what were the conditions at my crime scene? What would be the training data that would be appropriate to that crime scene? We don't see that as our job. We have enough of a problem just coming up with the mathematical methods that should produce the right answer if you have the training data that are appropriate to the crime scene. Yeah, and there are even other ways of estimating PMI, of course, depending upon the condition, it might be easier to look at desiccation or bloating or other kinds of things that give you information about PMI as opposed to maggot growth or succession or whatever else there might be. But what you're offering really is a mathematical construct or framework that you can apply across a, a variety of problem sets, and not just in PMI, but in other forensic contexts as well. Is that right? Uh, yes, and uh, I'm embarrassed because I was asked a question after the presentation about whether we had applied this to any non-animological data, and I said no, but I forgot we have. So I had a student recently who was interested in a wildlife forensics problem, a commercial fishery forensics problem. Down here in South Florida, we have a big problem with poaching of commercial lobsters, of spiny lobster. And the way that they do this, among others, is to put traps in the water before the start of the commercial season. And they have electronic locating devices on their traps. And then they'll come after the season has started and pull them up like they just put it out uh, and it'll already be full of lobster. So there's a, an application to try and tell if a trap has been in the water longer than it should have been. And so she was looking at uh, marine encrusting organisms to see if you could tell how long a lobster pot had been in the water. And this was just a preliminary study, but she found out that, yes, you could distinguish one week from two weeks from three weeks. It becomes harder after that. So these are general methods, and they could be used to analyze a wide variety of data for estimating PMI. Uh, and in fact, it doesn't have to be PMI at all. It's anything to estimate condition from response. In the literature, people have used it for things like estimating fetal age from various ultrasound measurements. So the method that you're talking about, you refer to as inverse prediction. And there are a number of ways that you could have approached this problem other than that, but you chose that particular approach. Should I blame you, Jeff, or is that Lynn's approach? I'd blame it on Jeff, but this all started when Jeff uh, came to me at LSU with uh, what he said was a simple question. He had data on growth of uh, maggots, and he was going to use inverse prediction, as it is shown in a textbook, to estimate ages from sizes. He came to me, I think, just to ask if that was okay, and and we talked about it, and I realized it was a little more complicated than that. So it, it's all Jeff's fault. <laughs> well, you got him straightened out in terms of how he used it, I assume. So that's good. Oh, I'm not sure about that. But it, it certainly led to some interesting things because the growth data are such that they introduce the, the complication that growth data are distinctly not 
homoscedastic, the variance of the measurements changes as they grow. The variance tends to get greater. And with multivariate okay. data, the correlations change as well with time. And so it's a complication that had not been incorporated into models that were used for inverse prediction in, uh, in other disciplines. One of my concerns is, is that forensic scientists in general are not trained to be statisticians. So we're presenting these ideas to the community, but they aren't necessarily very easy ideas to take in if you don't have the education in them. I mean, it, these are difficult concepts. So let's start from the first set of it. So these are based on parametric tests. That's how you phrase it in your research presentation. Define for me what a parametric test is, and then we're going to go from there. We're going to step right on through what inverse prediction is from there. So, uh, yeah, the distinction between parametric and distribution-free or non-parametric is a statistical distinction. Most of the models that, that is, uh, models of probabilistic things that are used in practice have depended on formulations of a set of possibilities. So we don't know exactly what the characteristics of this phenomenon are, but we posit a collection of possibilities. And the members in that collection are, are indexed in a certain way, and one way to index them is to name the indexes parameters. So the different values of the parameters indicate different members of this big set of possibilities that we could call the model. But in practice, a lot of things boil down to reference to, for example, normal distributions. And that happens in large part because something called the central limit theorem, which forms the basis of a large proportion of the probability approximations that are used in practice. And that ends up referring back to multivariate normal distributions, which are indexed by parameters, the parameters being the population means and associated with that measure of variation, which is called the variance. So how much do they differ among themselves? Let's take an example that will boil it down for me. Okay, let's, okay, I take my kids to the candy store. I have three kids. And there's 200 different kinds of candy in the store. All right, and I just set them loose for 10 minutes. And they can collect whatever candy they want. And at the end of the time, how much is it gonna cost me, right? And each kid is going to be different. Some kids like different kinds of candies, and you know, there's going to be a range of cost of the different candies. And for one kid, their predilection for more expensive candy, I can predict, is going to end up with a more ex expensive range of what it's going to cost me, right? And so, based on my experience with that kid before, I can have some idea about which candy that child is going to want to buy, and therefore use an inverse prediction model to guess if I give the kid five minutes versus 10 minutes versus 15 minutes, what the range of costs is gonna to be to me. That's a, basically the same problem set, right? Well, no, actually what you would do then, you see what the three kids have brought back. Uh, so you leave them in the store, you go out and you run some errands, you come back to pay the bill, and you look at the bill and you say, oh my God, how long were you in here picking things. So your job is to guess how long they were picking candy while you were gone. That's the inverse prediction. Prediction would be how much right. is it going to cost me. Gotcha. All right. Now you're talking. Okay. So what are the parameters of that experiment then? 
Well, we'd, we'd have to have some training data, you see. Uh, so we'd have to take some kids and uh, give them fixed amount of, amounts of time. So then we know how long they were shopping. And then we total up each one's bill for that time. So then we have data relating the amount that they're charged, the, the cost of the trip, with how long they shopped. Uh, so that's the training data. Now we can talk about parameters or models because there are a tremendous variety of sorts of models that we could uh, use to model how much they spent in terms of how long they were in there. Uh, and the characteristics of those models might take the shape of parameters like means and variances. And basically the difference that you might see in terms of your assumptions, it's like you might have different candy stores, right? And I might be able to decide, okay, here is what characterizes this particular candy store, and I can make the same set of assumptions about this other one over here in the sense that these same assumptions will still apply to the different situations. So I can still use the same inverse prediction model in that case. Uh, to what extent is this going to be robust against the assumptions I make? Is the system going to be able to deal with that level of elasticity of assumption? Yeah, well, the more you know, the better. And uh, the example you've given, no, I, I certainly uh, wouldn't expect what I get from one store to apply to another unless I know something about the stores. If I know enough to think that, well, I'm going into a, a Target in Baton Rouge versus a Target in uh, Miami, I might be willing to think that, well, they're probably pretty similar. But if you're going to a Godiva store as opposed to a Rite Aid, for example, I doubt seriously that the same models would work. Sure. That's a very important point. And not only in terms of being able to do the inverse prediction, but also in terms of being able to understand the prediction interval. Yeah, it's just the analogy is sort of straining credulity, though. For example, if you're talking about insects, then it's not reasonable to expect the same growth relations to apply to different species. It wouldn't make sense on the surface. I wouldn't think so. But the same modeling techniques and the same general methodology, let's say, of inverse prediction, would work uh, on training data under reasonable conditions, training data from different species. But you certainly wouldn't use training data from one in order to uh, try to guess the age of a mystery specimen of another species. There has to be yeah. sufficient uh, similarity. It has to be reasonable on the face of it. Doesn't that raise the question of the practicality of the approach? I mean, if we have to have that many different kinds of training sets, is it going to be practically possible to develop training sets of a breadth of coverage to make this a viable way of looking at the statistical confidence? So, first of all, we don't know because we've only just recently published these methods, and now is the time to roll up our sleeves and try to answer some of these things. But let me give you an example of one way we're starting to approach this. You raised the idea earlier of what was the person's last meal, and what we're talking about there is does the exact food that an insect is eating affect its development rate or succession rate? And 
if you do a carefully controlled laboratory experiment, yes, you can find, and many people have reported, for example, that these larvae grow at one rate on liver and a different rate on muscle and a different rate on brain. So this raises the idea that you might make a mistake, that if you were collecting a maggot from a corpse and it fed on brain, but you use laboratory data on liver, that you might come up with the wrong answer. This is what people worry about. And it could be impractical because it's hard to know exactly what that maggot did before you picked it off the corpse. You might have found it in the head, but is that where it's been? So how much do you have to worry about this? Well, what we've been showing, and, the, and we're just getting started on this, is that you can take maggot growth models developed on different kinds of tissue, different organs, and because we get such large numbers, I mean, that is one of the reasons that this has happened with entomological data is because entomological experiments produce huge numbers of observations. And so it, it makes it easier to evaluate statistical techniques. But we've grown these things on, let's say, heart and liver. And you can find a significant difference between it. You know, the, the numbers are so high that if there's a tiny difference, you'll find statistical significance. But what we've found is that, at least in some cases, if you do a standard comparison of growth rates, yes, they're significantly different. But if you take the inverse prediction model developed for just the liver maggots, and use it to predict the age of the larvae grown on heart. In fact, you'll get it right more than 95% of the time. And so it still performs well, even though they're not exactly the same. So this is just initial work, but if you were to find that, yes, they grow differently on, on liver and on brain and on muscle, but that predictive models based on one sort of tissue still perform well enough, or you just have to know how well they perform. You say, well, if, if I don't know what tissue that these maggots fed on, I can still expect to be right 80% of the time. You'd rather be right 95% of the time. But the point is just to be able to objectively express the uncertainty in your answer. And so there are ways to approach the fact that you don't actually know what that maggot has been eating and to take into account, well, how bad can that be? your prediction. If you find out that, sure, there are differences between tissues, but it doesn't have a practical effect, then you don't worry about it. Or if it does have a practical effect, then you take the worst case scenario and say, I could be as wrong as being right only 80% of the time. I see. My biggest confusion now is something I probably can just ignore. And that is that it, this is easier to understand in a linear case. And there's an awful lot of non-linear data, certainly in insect growth. And it's difficult for me to understand necessarily how easily the nonlinear data can be reduced in this way because it seems to me you would have an expanding set of uncertainties as time goes on because of the nonlinear data. It is not as big a problem as you might imagine. I mean, yes, these relations can be complicated and certainly nonlinear is a, a sort of minimal description of the complication, but the kinds of models that we use are very adaptive. So accommodating multivariate curvilinear growth uh, is practically no problem at all. It's being able to model that is not a problem. It's the use of the model to make inference and defensible probability statements about the methods that produce the results. That is more difficult. Accommodating nonlinearity 
accommodating second-order conditions that change the variance-covariance structure, changing nonlinearly uh, with age. We already have published papers showing that that can be done and can be accommodated, and that it can be accommodated with statistical software that is uh, in wide use. It's a matter of recognizing that the kinds of models that we've been dealing with fit into a much broader framework of mixed linear models. The linear there means something different from the linear relations that I think you're referring to. But there's a well-established methodology and statistics of mixed models, and the models that we deal with for growth can be fit into that framework and thus take advantage of the great numerical procedures that are available for that purpose. So you've actually developed a mixed model software that can be applied to the use of inverse prediction for a variety of different problem sets of this sort. Uh, we are using uh, mixed model software that has been out there for 20, 25 years in SAS, in the uh, statistical computing package. It's called the PROC mixed or the mixed procedure, mixed models procedure. I think our contribution has been to recognize that adaptive, versatile models for characteristics of insect growth, for example, can be formulated in a way that fits into the framework that set of procedures addresses so that we can use that. I'd hate to have to rewrite all those programs uh, and debug them and all that sort of thing because numerically it's a little bit complicated. But fortunately, it's been tried and tested now for a couple of decades. I really want to get down into the so what's at this point. So theoretically, uh, there's no reason a practitioner looking at this type of problem couldn't take your approach and the SAS software and apply it. I think that the only thing missing is a larger number of uh, validation studies. And I think that sure. people could start doing validation studies right now. I think the other barrier to it is really knowledge transfer to help people understand how to apply this. So how many practitioners do you think have been exposed to what you're doing and do you know of anybody who's attempting to go to the next level of applying this or doing the validation work? Well, so at this stage, m most forensic entomologists uh, have a day job. There are a few people who that is their job, but most are academics. And so a crime lab uh, doesn't do this. There are a few, but for the most part, if uh, a medical examiner or someone at a, a state crime lab gets insect evidence, they truck it over to the university. These are the sort of people doing forensic entomology and forensic anthropology as well. So these are people who are in a position to consult a statistician. At this point, I would say that somebody who wants to do this should go knock on the door in their statistics department and form a collaboration. Uh, that would probably be the best way to do it. Fair enough. So where are you all heading with respect to your research work? Is your NIJ uh, grant continuing at this point, or is it complete? Uh, it is not. It's expired. So one thing you can do with this is evaluate the utility of your responses. So I gave a very simple example in the presentation, and this was maggot growth, and we grew larvae at uh, one temperature and, and sampled a bunch of different ages, and we measured a couple of measures of body size, a length and width, and then a categorical variable, which was life stage. And then we evaluated 
inverse prediction models made up of different combinations of those responses and found out that if you measured width and instar, you didn't need to measure length. It didn't help. And that's the sort of thing that I want to pursue in the short term, which is looking at all these different things that people measure when they do forensic entomological research and find out what we don't need. And this is because one thing that is necessary for the field is to scale up the size of our experiments. And when you do that, it becomes expensive, it becomes labor intensive. For example, people are starting to do a lot of molecular biology, and that's really exciting. It costs a lot of money. What are we getting for that? And for example, people have realized, and this is true, that insect growth rate varies according to sex. Males grow faster than females. Usually to tell the sex of a maggot, you've got to do a molecular genetic test. You can't look at it and tell what it is. That's expensive. Is it worth it? So what we want to do is measure a bunch of variables, make models based on various combinations of those variables, and what we might find is that some of them don't help. You don't get anything for them, and you can drop that from your study design. And if you gain some money by doing that, if you gain some time by doing that, then you can increase your replication and get more statistical power. So that's, that's my goal in the short term, is to start applying these models in such a way to evaluate the utility of all the things that we measure in this research. That's fascinating. I think that you're saying something very fundamental there. I'll take an example from fire investigation and something that's arisen from those who are attempting to do statistical characterization. And conceptually, they have basically made the same argument. It is, it's a little bit different in the sense that we at uh, a fire scene collecting the right kinds of samples and the right number of samples that allow you to give the actual information that, that we want to get, the actual answers. Because what's being collected isn't necessarily aligned with the answer that you're after. The assumption is that it is, but in fact, when you actually do the science, it may not be. And so I think what you're saying is something similar, and that is that we need to align what we're doing in observation and collection with what answer we're, we're, we're actually after. But that's very hard work to determine what that alignment's supposed to be. Uh, yes. The death investigation community is uh, relatively small compared to, say, forensic DNA analysis. There aren't enough of us to look at every single question. We need to find a way to optimize our observations. Yeah. And you say, think about statistics before you collect the data. Before you collect the data. I thought that was wonderful that you quoted that in your presentation. I've tried to cover kind of a basics of where you're coming from, what you're trying to do to give some perspective on this, but is there anything else that you feel like we should cover to try to make sure that the folks listening to the podcast have an appropriate understanding of what it is you're accomplishing and, and your intent here? Uh, let me go first, because then Jeff can correct any misimpressions. Uh, but I want to mention another aspect, and Jeff mentioned earlier on in the conversation that we think that this methodology and this approach is broadly applicable. For example, uh, you said there are other ways to estimate PMI, for example, bloating. And uh, the characterization of decomposition stages, as I understand it, is mostly categorical. In other words, you establish a set of rules so that the observer can go out 
and observe and say, okay, this is in the bloat stage, this is in the whatever. You know? So it's categorical. Well, our work is dealing with categorical responses like that and inverse prediction based on those. That gets into the categorical side of statistics, which in some ways is much more complicated than the quantitative measurement side and tends to be much more computationally intensive in order to get supportable, defensible, probabilistic results. But our methodology deals with categorical responses like that. And in the papers that I saw presented Tuesday afternoon in that session, uh, almost every one of those dealt one way or another with uh, categorical responses uh, in addition to quantitative responses. So it's a big area, and there's lots of work that needs to be done, and it doesn't fit neatly into the uh, quantitative kind of methodology that's used for continuous measurement. Jeff, did he get it right? Yes, and what I think that this leads into is that we see this as a general methodology that could be used for any kind of postmortem data, not just entomological. So people estimating time since death include forensic pathologists and forensic anthropologists and entomologists and increasingly chemists, and there's a lot of work on microbiology and genomics sort of things, and the list goes on. And right now we're somewhat in silos. And although we do talk to each other, you might uh, be working on the same case. Even if we're talking to each other, one person comes out with an estimate, the other person comes out with a separate estimate. It's not one comprehensive analysis based on all the data. And that is what we hope to promote, is to have a framework that could be used to evaluate all of the postmortem data. And it's a little grandiose to say this, but I would like to see you know, a multidisciplinary field of death investigation. That you would no longer be forensic pathologist, but you would be a, a PMI estimator using all the data. And the other thing I'd like to say is that none of what we do so far is a substitute for empirical validation. No matter how good the math looks, no matter how well the models perform, it should be empirically validated before going to court. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and you, any computer model is, is only worth the validation that you do, especially given the fact that a model can very easily be chasing its parameters, you know, without realizing it. That's a good way to put it. But, you know, I agree. The validation under a range of realistic conditions is absolutely essential, and the money has to come from somewhere for that. Somebody's got to be willing to pay for that, and it's expensive, and, but it has to be done. Well, we certainly appreciate everything that NIJ has done to invest in the problem thus far, and, and I know that they're continuing to pay attention to it, and I trust that they will continue to see progress made, especially as long as we have two great researchers like you folks involved in it. These are very difficult topics, technically, in a way. It's not always easy to be accessible, and I think you all do a fantastic job of not only looking at the problem fundamentally, but also presenting it in a way that is, I think, quite understandable. So I appreciate your your uh, patience with me and uh, your time on the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much. It's nice of you to say that. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I hope we have a chance to chat again about these uh, topics and also do more to bring them to the field. Uh, you all have a, uh, have a good day, and thank you for being on Just Science. Thank you. are very welcome. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policy of its funding.
Next week on Just Science, the R&D special release season will be wrapping up with Dr. Rob Mayer, who will discuss gunshot acoustics. Please visit the FTCOE's website at ForensicCOE.org to learn more about this episode and to watch the 2017 NIJ R&D Symposium webinars that were recorded at the 2017 AFS Annual Scientific Meeting. 